During holiday travel, some people get delirious. Some get delayed. And some get Del Griffin. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. Neil Page got all three. I was on my way home to spend a nice holiday with my family. Instead, I'm in a motel bed with a stranger. So instead of Thanksgiving with his family, he's spending three days with the turkey. Two happy clams just whistling down the road. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, and the Martone family. Paramount Pictures presents... Wilma! Steve Martin. You ever been to Hawaii? Yeah. You see God Ho while you were there? See the second show, that's the best one. Is that right? Yeah. John Candy. Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. In a new film by John Hughes. Plane, trains, and automobiles. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hell of a game, hell of a game. Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. There are always wonderful new pictures to see, delightful snacks to nibble, a gay, pleasant evening for all. We hope you have a wonderful time. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! Please adjust your radio to the correct frequency and get ready for the 1987 film Planes, Trains, and Automobiles at TRN Drive-In. The Thanksgiving classic follows Neil Page, played by Steve Martin, who is somewhat of a control freak, trying to get home to Chicago and spend Thanksgiving with his family. Unfortunately, his flight is rerouted to Kansas because of a snowstorm and his sanity begins to fray. Worse yet... He is forced to bunk up with the talkative Del Griffith, played by John Candy, whom he finds extremely annoying. Together they must overcome the insanity of holiday travel to reach their intended destination. I am one of your hosts, Jason, for TRN Drive-In, and I am alongside my pal Mickey. How are you, Mickey? Pretty good. I am the less professional sounding of the two. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you're here nonetheless. I, I don't really like talking to myself, especially when I'm reviewing the movies. But, uh, I, man, I can't wait to uh, to kick off this brand new show. Uh, more than your, your typical movie review, we're going to dive into some history and uh, just a little bit of this and that and some oddball topics that you probably wouldn't normally hear on a regular movie review podcast. But, yeah, this was a, a great starter, I think, for this brand new show. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it's iconic for the time of year that we're in, and besides, it's just a well-loved movie for any time of the year. I could watch this movie anytime. Yeah, it's just a pure comedy, even though it's you know typically hunted around the holidays. I, I always seem to be hunting for it now that I don't have cable. I'm like, okay, what streaming service is it on? Uh, I, I've never owned a Blu-ray or DVD copy of it, surprisingly. Uh, just until we decided we were going to review it, I went out and got a digital copy of it just so I can have it now. But it just has jumped around so much over the years that somebody's got to have it somewhere. And it's always on this this kind of time of year. But yeah, I, I've hit play on it uh, throughout the year when I've seen it popped up on Netflix or Hulu in May or you know sometime mm -hmm. in the summer. And it's just a great, 
great laugh no matter how many times you watch it. Right. And uh, it, it's relatable for so many people because while I don't really think any of us have went through quite what Neil did in this movie, we've all went through aspects of it on different trips and travels right. of our time. So it's easy to relate to because you can put yourself in that position. And uh, I've probably traveled more than probably most people listening to this. Uh, I've went through a lot of trips where similar stuff like this happens. Not all at once, of course. That I mean, what he went through was nightmarish, trying to get from New York to Chicago, and it takes days. But I've had some trips where everything just seems to go against you, and I just feel so bad for Neil in this movie. Not only have I went through the the disaster half of it, I have been stuck with people not quite as bad as Dale, but bad in their own right that just compounds the situation. And we all know people like Dale whether we've traveled with them or not. So this movie, there's so much to it that we can all relate to is why it's longevity is what it is. I definitely agree. The everybody's had a flight delayed or even canceled at the airport and you're stuck there for hours. Or I've, I've had the situation where I was, the flight was canceled and I had to get a hotel room for the next day to jump on a plane again. So yeah, that just that traveling aspect, especially in wintertime, uh, that's the key is, is hell <laughs> mm-hmm. in the freezing weather, uh, delays on the road and icy conditions. And, oh, uh, it's just it going through each and every aspect of this movie. It is trying. You can feel his pain. And when he explodes and several points, he explodes during the movie, <laughs> you just feel for him. You're like, it's not gratuitous. Even the scene that, that probably most people go back to that uh, seems a little gratuitous with the language. I don't think it is because I, I can just, it was just building and building and boom, it's, it's all let out. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, Edie McClurg was just the one in that position. It could have happened right. to anybody. And I've, I keep my cool under pressure better than most. I could certainly identify with, with Steve Martin's Neil character in that particular scene that, there have been a few times where you just have to get it off your chest, whether right. you're wanting to hurt the person's feelings or not, or you just have to get it off your chest. You can't contain it anymore. And this whole movie just builds and builds and builds to that. And it's a roller coaster. I mean, it's, it's not just a, a building in one explosion, but it, like I said, he explodes so many times and there's so, so many times where you're like, okay, well they're, they're back to almost being friends and then something happens and boom, it's gone. It's out the yeah. window again, you know. But it comes full circle by the end. It has a happy ending. A lot of movies don't have happy endings. This one certainly does. But the ending wouldn't have been as happy and as uh, wouldn't get you in the feels like it does if Neil hadn't went through everything he went through before that. That's right. So it, it all builds perfectly. And, uh, well, before I say anything else, if you're listening and you are one of the few people who've never watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, you should pause this show if you're able to go watch it and then come back and listen to it because all this will make a lot more sense right? if you've seen it. Yeah. And I think we're going to make that assumption that it's going to be filled with spoilers. So right. uh, come back if you haven't seen it or even if you haven't watched it in a while and it's been maybe, you know, several years since you've seen it, go back and watch it or go back, uh, go over to YouTube and watch those 10 clips you get for free, you know, from that one channel. And uh, just to remind you of some of the, the more popular scenes, but yeah, we're going to go through since this being our first drive in um, 
what we're going to do is we're going to alternate. So we're going to take turns on who essentially compiles all the the data, the notes, and everything. I've added some in this, but this is mainly Mickey's episode for bringing all of the the content. So I'm going to kind of take a back seat or, or passenger seat, I guess you'll say, on this little drive uh, through uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. But yeah, we're going to kind of lay out all the uh, all the parts of the movie and add in some of our own kind of flavor to the review as well. Well, the movie was written and directed by the great John Hughes. I think we can all agree, people who listen or, or visit the Retro Network, that I'd say we're all pretty much fans of John Hughes. Wouldn't you think mm-hmm. so? I would think so, yeah. Yeah, he put out so many movies that we hold in such high regard. He wrote a lot of this movie in six hours' time. Because it was, ba- of course, he embellished it. But he once had a trip from New York to Chicago. It took him six days to get home. He went through a lot of these similar situations. And that's when he said, well, this needs, you know, this could be a movie. Mm-hmm. Not that it should be a movie. This could be a movie. And I thought that was fascinating that you wouldn't think somebody would go through something like this. <laughs> right. All of this combined. But, uh, and he cast Steve Martin and John Candy in it. Like this come out in 1987. So both of them, I don't know if we would say at the peak of their power in 1987, but certainly both big time uh, marketable stars at that. Oh, period. yeah. So, yeah. So it did have a good cast and the cameos are great. A young Kevin Bacon in a cameo role in the early scene of the movie. Mm hmm. We get a yeah. younger Ben Stein in a cameo in the movie. Lots of John Hughes regulars, I would say. Yes. You get you get Ben Stein, who's also in Ferris Bueller. You get Ferris's dad, who is the the guy in the office there at the beginning of the movie. That's kind of he's working with, mm-hmm. and then of course Edie McClurg too. That she was in Ferris Bueller, and uh, she's having a baby. I think maybe some more too. So yeah, yeah. those those John John Hughes liked his. Uh, he had a, almost like a there was like a John Hughes family of actors, you know. Well. Uh, it was weird when I was going through this movie, Michael McKean, who plays mm-hmm. uh, the state trooper, he actually got the fourth billing in this movie for some reason. Well, I can I can dive into a little bit of that if you don't have any uh, facts on that. Just watching uh, this uh, behind the scenes like featurette on YouTube in preparation for the movie, his scene was supposed to be a lot longer than it was, and they trimmed it. So that's why they brought him in and he shot for, I think, two or three days, he said in the documentary hmm. and ended up just cutting the part down. And that, that could be why he was still built forth because they were playing uh, on a, a bigger scene for him and they trimmed it. I guess they were still paying him like a fourth. So I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I knew he had also been in Spinal Tap in the movie Clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, he's not a, a very recognizable name today, looking back yeah. at things. And of course, One, Kevin Bacon wasn't a big star at that point. He had been in, you know, his fair amount of stuff, but yeah, they had just shot. She's having a baby. And I've just seen within the last like few weeks that there's this huge theory that, uh, it was actually his character from that movie in this movie. And several of John Hughes movies are in like the same universe. Huh. So I I have to read a little bit more on that, but I've seen headlines of people trying to match up certain characters from certain movies and their little cameo roles in other John Hughes movies. But I, I did read that just recently. Now, was that the movie that was 
was it released before planes, trains, and automobiles? It was. It was. And actually, I I want to say I read somewhere the movie that, or maybe it was just after. I can't remember. It was something about the movie that his wife, that Neil's wife is watching early on when she's in bed alone is a movie that had not been released yet from John Hughes. It might have been She's Having a Baby or something like that. Anyway, yeah, another one that stuck out to me as far as uh, as the casting was Martin Ferrero, who plays that motel clerk. Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, for the longest time, one of the informants on Miami Vice, mm-hmm. Izzy. And he was also the lawyer in Jurassic Park that gets eaten on the toilet. <laughs> you remember that? Uh-huh. I was like... Boom, yeah, I remember him. <laughs> well, playing uh, Neil's wife, uh, you got Layla Robbins. I don't think she was ever in anything too big in movie-wise, but she went on right up through today as uh, all kinds of television show credits, recurring characters on different TV shows. When you watch it now, you're like, I know her, but I don't know where I know her from. It's because you've right. watched TV in years since then, and you just recognize her. Uh, of course, Edie McClurg, the desk attendant at the rental car company who bears the brunt of Neil's pain. She was all over television during the time when this movie was out. She was on small wonder all the time. She was in uh, Elvira mistress of the dark movie, the dance till dawn made for TV movie. She was the voice of Mrs. Seaworthy on the snorks around this time. Mm-hmm. And my favorite role of hers, uh, playing Willard Scott's wife on Valerie and the Hogan family to see her and Willard right. come, jumping into the house all happy and excited all the time. And then the last one I got here of any note was Richard Hurd, who is one of the great character actors in television. Uh, he played Wilhelm on Seinfeld for a bunch of episodes. I mean, he was George's supervisor when George worked for the Yankees. Mm-hmm. He joined the carpet cleaning cult that time. <laughs> but of course he was on all kinds of shows, 18 TJ hooker, murder. She wrote night rider, Hill street blues, and too many more to list. So he put together a good cast, you did. Uh, two marketable big stars, plenty of character actors who really had their, their chops down pat to go with them. And the acting in this is great. John Candy does a fantastic job of the bumbling, annoying sidekick, I guess you'd say. But it, it's not like he's too far over the top. Right. Some people may think he went a little over the top. But I think it's a little grounded in reality because he almost perfectly mirrors an uncle of mine. So, <laughs> you know, I don't think I have a Del Griffith in my family, but just what you said about him being over the top. Yeah, I don't think he was either because you had those scenes that were well written for him on the downside, which was showing his actual feelings. And, and when Steve Martin goes off on him in the motel room and he's just, I'm just me, you know? Yeah. And then when he's in the car freezing to death and he's talking to himself that, Oh man, I just blew it. And I went, I did too much. I went kind of overboard on some of the things that he said or, or trying to relate to Neil to, to be his friend. So you had those low moments too, or, or real moments to offset those times where he did seem like he was going too far to be his friend. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I liked, this is probably close to the top, if not the best role that John Candy had ever put together. In my opinion, well, we'll cover that specifically yeah. a little later on too. I've got some other thoughts on that, but, and I don't think Steve Martin 
he had a lot of scenes in this where he's having to go above and beyond like uh, at the rental car desk. But I don't even think that comes across as any kind of overacting. Mm-mm. If you were in his shoes, I would, if anything, he was a little more reserved than he possibly could have been in some of those scenes. Yeah. Given the situation. I agree with that. So how old of a movie is this for you? And what I mean by, I'll tell you me, I probably didn't first see this until the early nineties. I was probably three, four five years after it came out would have been my first viewing, but I come across it on TV somewhere and like, Oh my goodness, this is so funny. And of course, then I was starting to rent it when I worked at the video store every year for the holidays. But what, where did you, how old is it for you? That's interesting because yeah, I think it was about that time, probably early nineties when it was on cable and I probably just got the edited version for several, several years. I'm, I'm, I was trying to remember specifically when I first watched the unedited version of it. And it was probably not until, I don't know, late 90s, maybe even early 2000s, until we probably rented it at you know Blockbuster or someplace like that and watching it. And we were kind of, kind of eye-opening on some of those scenes. And, you know, watching the cable version... I'm just talking to somebody about a Christmas vacation the other day and how much it's filtered for cable television, you know, and it's sometimes a little bit eye opening when you watch it for the first time because you get all of those censored uh, parts in there. Um, But sometimes just too like for cable to fit it in a two hour time slot, you're editing parts out and, and, and scenes that you just don't remember. So as far as I'm concerned, yeah, it's, I, Ni- early 90s is probably when I first watched it, but not the you know, theatrical version. Well, it's been so long ago for me since I first found it on cable. I think I probably only, maybe that may be the only time I've ever seen it on television. And it's always been the original theatrical version that I've watched. So mm-hmm. I don't remember that reaction of, hey, come on, kids, let's watch this. And all of a sudden, like, kids, oh my God, close your ears. It's <laughs> 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 just not what I remember. <laughs> because I don't remember that first viewing. Yeah. But uh, we talked some last week on the Retro Network podcast. There's not a lot of Thanksgiving movies out there. Mm-hmm. This one is certainly set in Thanksgiving. That's the whole point. He's trying to get home for Thanksgiving dinner. Is this the best Thanksgiving movie ever? I think it's got to be. I mean, it's the same conundrum that we go through every year is die hard a christmas movie well it's set at christmas but like this could have happened anytime during the year it just happened to be at thanksgiving and Mm -hmm. this whole series of events happens preventing him from getting home but the heart of the story obviously is yes he wants to get home for thanksgiving he misses his daughter's little thanksgiving recital so that's part of it but it's not I don't know. I have a pro- I have a problem with calling Die Hard a Christmas movie, but there's really nothing else close, in my opinion. There's a few out there that are set around Thanksgiving that, mm-hmm. like you talked about, Son-in-Law, Dutch, some of those other ones that are around this time. And I, I think it is the, the gold standard. Yeah. Yes. And you, you said you could do this anytime, it's, but it just happens to be set at Thanksgiving. I disagree with that. I think the movie would be funny, but the part that brings you into it, Thanksgiving and Christmas are the two holidays where you really think of and people want to go home for Christmas or Thanksgiving for the holidays. It wouldn't be the same if he's trying to get home in time for a 4th of July picnic. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> your your personal emotional attachment to his struggle wouldn't quite be the same as it is him trying to get home for Thanksgiving. I under, yeah, I understand that. Uh, and more or less any time during like the winter months is what I was thinking. And you're delayed and you go through that whole process of trying to get home. But the yeah, the Thanksgiving edge of it, even if it was Christmas too, adds some to the to the motivation to get back for a certain day, you know, right. don't want to miss that Turkey. Yeah. The, uh, I've had several experiences traveling with some not f- fun people for Thanksgiving. And I know what Neil's going through and you're, I'm not going to say you make bad decisions, but you know, through the movie, he's, he's trying to find just the next thing he can do to get home instead of really thinking it through and weighing his options. Uh, there at the beginning of the movie is the guy he works with is like, you know, just stay and take the nine. Why try to make the six? But you get so focused on, you know, being there that it, it affects your decision making sometimes. And mm-hmm. I can fully relate to that. I've made those mistakes in the past, too, trying to get home for Thanksgiving or get home for Christmas. And everybody can identify with the movie in different ways. For me, that's the main part I identify with is I know exactly what his motivations are because I've been there. I've lived it. You know, I want to get home for Thanksgiving. Just real mm-hmm. quick sidebar. I was working 13 hours away in Florida one year, uh, right up on Wednesday until 7 p.m. And the guys I were traveling with who really didn't have families were like, well, how far do you want to go before we get a room? And I was like, all the way. <laughs> <laughs> Drive all night. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you, you go through those struggles sometimes. And it, so, I, like I said, Trying to make it for a Labor Day barbecue. Now, it'd be a funny movie, but it wouldn't pull at your heartstrings as much as this one did. But I do agree. I think it's the gold standard of Thanksgiving movies. Is it one you watch every year for Thanksgiving? Yeah, I try to get it, if not around Thanksgiving week, sometime in November, you know, after Halloween gets by and you're on to that Thanksgiving mode. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to get my annual viewing in. So, yeah, I, I like to watch it at least once a year. I do too. I try to squeeze it in along with Son-in-Law and Dutch. But uh, what about holidays in general? Where does it rank? And this is a big, this is a hard one because of all the Christmas movies that are out there. Oh, Christmas yeah. is overwhelming. Would this be, let's just say personally, is this in your top 10 holiday movies, you think? Oh, I would, I would say easily. Easily top 10. It might have a chance at my top five, Christmas really? considered. Just because it is, it's so, for lack of a better word, rewatchable. It's just one that I can go back and watch each year and still get the same amount of laughs I would as I've watched it the, the previous years. So th- that being said, I think that's why I would rank it pretty high in, in an overall holiday movie list. I don't... <sighs> I'm, I'm a huge Christmas movie fan, so I, I can't sit here. I'll have to take some time and, and rank them. I don't know if it would fit in my top 10 if I was including Christmas and all holiday movies. But uh, it's certainly my favorite Thanksgiving movie. And it goes hand in hand with a lot of Christmas movies that I like. Like The Walton's Homecoming. It's the same kind of deal. So it, it, it's big time for me. Mm-hmm. I'd definitely give it that. But I know Steve Martin and John Candy were big fans of it. They both said in interviews at different times that Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was the best film that they've starred in. Each one of them said that individually. Really? Yes. 
Now, I don't know how old that quote from Steve Martin is because, you know, he's still making movies now. Maybe something's overtook it. Unfortunately, we lost John Candy, you know, way too early. Yeah. Uh, in one of his final interviews, that's what he said was the best film he had starred in. So I think that'll go on record as his opinion. Yeah. And I could say just from watching that documentary where they uh, had Steve Martin, John Candy and John Hughes on stage, basically just interviewing them. Each of the actors said they immediately said yes. Once they read the script, it was that good to them. So they held the, the script itself in such high regard. And I, I can see them saying that, that they, thought it was one of their, or if not the best what movie that they had been a part of. Well, we've kind of give some general thoughts on the movie before we get in depth on the scenes and giving out some awards. Let's, let's do a little facts on this thing. Give people up to okay. speed on it. So it was released November 25th, 1987. That was Thanksgiving day in 1987. It's only competition that day. Three men and a baby was released. So Wow. Looking back on it with today's eyes, that would have been a heck of a double feature to go to the theater and watch. Yeah, because Three Men and a Baby was, the, I think, the biggest film of 88, right? I, I, I want to say it was really high up there on the box office. Well, I guess it would have been for 88 if it was released in late 87. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Three Men and a Baby done, but Planes, Trains, and Automobiles had a $30 million budget. It made a little over $7 million on opening weekend, which translates to $16 million today. And $16 million today versus today's type movies like Avengers and stuff seems minuscule for an opening weekend. Right. But it ended up doing, adjusted for inflation, $113 million worldwide for its run. So that's a success because it had the $30 million budget. Mm-hmm. This is weird. Of all the movies released on Thanksgiving Day, and this is just talking about the money it made. This movie is actually number 141 on the list of grossing <laughs> movies. Wow. Which is crazy yeah. that it would be that low. Of course, a lot of times, and we've mentioned this on other shows you and I have done, a lot, you have to look around the movie sometimes to mm-hmm. see what affects it. You know, some higher movies may have had a weak lead in as far as weeks coming into it, just not anticipated movies. Released a week ahead of this was Running Man. Well, actually, almost two weeks. Twelve days ahead of this was Running Man. Five days in front of this was Teen Wolf 2. That's probably why this did a low number. Everybody spent their money on Teen Wolf 2. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. but (laughs) And two weeks after this, Throw Mama from the Train was released with Danny DeVito. I haven't watched that in years. No, it has been a long time for me, too, but that was a good movie. So that's what was going on. That's what was in the theaters. What about Teen Wolf 2? Was you a fan? Not really. I, I've seen it literally probably twice. Yeah, me too. And I that was enough for me. Me too. So I wouldn't necessarily... It wasn't a blockbuster for its time, but it did make good money. It was only nominated for one award, and that was at the American Comedy Awards in 1988. John Candy was nominated for Funniest Actor in a Motion Picture in a Leading Role. He didn't win, though. You want to take any kind of stab at who did win that award? In 87? Yeah, it would have been Uh, for 87. Funniest Actor in a Motion Picture in a Leading Role. I don't remember what else was released that year. Well, Robin Williams won for Good Morning Vietnam. Okay, that makes sense. And that was a good movie. He won everything that year, I think. 
Well, that was a good movie, but just role versus role. I think John Candy was funnier. Just personally. Well, yeah. If you specifically for a comedy association or comedy award, right. Robin Williams was great, but yeah, that role was. It's hard to really compare those two. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, other nominees for that award that year were Danny DeVito for Throw Mama from the Train, mm-hmm. Nicholas Cage for Raising Arizona, and <laughs> Steve Martin for Roxanne. Okay, I didn't realize uh, Roxanne was the same year. Well, apparently uh, they were. Yeah, Raising Arizona, highly underrated comedy. Yes. Siskel and Ebert both gave this movie two thumbs up. And Gene awesome. Siskel said it was John Candy's best role to date. And Roger Ebert thought Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was one of the greatest movies ever made. It is perfectly cast and soundly constructed, and all else flows naturally. Wow. That's about as high praise as you're ever going to see from Roger Ebert. That's absolutely. Wow. That's great. And, you know, we talked at the beginning about the cast had two great stars and plenty of solid people around them. And he touches on it. It's perfectly cast. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he may be talking about just the Steve Martin, John Candy roles, but I go from top to bottom. I think that movie is almost perfectly cast all the way around. I agree. But. Let's get on to some awards for this okay. show. The first award, favorite scene in the movie. And I've got some nominees oh. here for you. Okay. I'm, let me get through all the nominees, and then we'll break them down one at a time. We'll discuss them a little bit. So I think the first nominee is their first hotel scene. That's, that's the one where Steve Martin finally tells Dale what he thinks about him. It's, fair, it's actually fairly early in the movie for that type of scene. The next scene I'll nominate is the bus trip. It's kind of a short scene, but it's got a couple memorable parts. The third scene I'll nominate is when they're at the bus station and Dale Griffith is trying to raise money by selling the shower curtain rings. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think people would get on to me if I didn't nominate the scene at the rental car desk. Right. The ride from hell is what I called it. That's... When they're in the car on the, the highway, car sequence. Night. yeah, yes, yeah, that's a top one, and uh, and then the final scene I'll nominate where Dale confesses that his wife is dead and he don't have a home, and and you get all the touching, feel good moments there at the end. So those are our nominees. If you have any other scene you want to nominate, feel free to throw it in. The uh, the only other one I wrote down that you haven't mentioned was the second hotel scene after they they settle in after the car ride and you've got Dell trying to read the book with a lighter. He cracks his knuckles and then the clearing his sinuses. <laughs> well, that's all, in, that's all in the first hotel scene. Mm, is it? Mm-hmm. I was thinking the that sec- was the, now the second hotel scene is when they're, uh, sitting around drinking the little airplane bottles. It's the night before they actually make it home. You might be right. You might be I'm- right. I was thinking that was the same scene. Now I've actually got those notes that you mentioned uh, uh, written down as notes for the first scene for us to go through it. But let's go through it. Some of the highlights of that scene, and I love, it's got the vibrating bed in it mm-hmm. that Dale is dropping quarters in. I've stayed in some chinchy hotels that still have vibrating beds. While they are awesome, <laughs> it's it's not something you see very often. The mess that Dale leaves in the bathroom. Oh my gosh. Steve Martin gets out, and the only thing he has to dry off with is that washcloth. Yeah, I have stayed with people like that. This scene really resonated with me from beginning to end. 
uh, yeah, Dale clearing his sinuses and he's reading the book trivia. No, that was a different book, but I got a trivia question for you. When he meets Dale in the airport, the first time, did you notice the title of the book that Dale? Yeah. Was reading? Can any, uh, crap. The what Canadian mounted. Yes. The Canadian mounted. <laughs> John Kenny being from Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the fact that it was also one of those cheap, sexualized romance novels right. that he was reading. <laughs> Did you happen to see that there is a deleted scene from this movie? Uh, we'll get to that later. Okay. It may be a different one than you're talking about, but yes, there, uh, I only we'll get saw... to that with the, did you know stuff? Okay. All right. I only saw that there was one. So, uh, uh not that I'm nominating that, but just speaking of scenes, what makes that scene, I think the most memorable is the following morning when they wake up and Dale is hugging Neil and, kissing his ear and Neil's like, Dale, mm -hmm. why are you kissing my ear? <laughs> but why are you holding my hand? <laughs> where's your other hand? It's between two pillows. Uh, those aren't pillows. <laughs> but that See those scene, bears? Yeah. Hell of a team. Hell of a team. They're going to go all the way this year. year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think that's the, the part that really, that's the climax of this whole scene, but the whole scene is quite yeah. long. I do like that one. I, me personally, if I was going to cast my vote, would be the car. I love well, the car scene. Well, let's go um, through it here a little bit too. Yes, man. I think the one of my favorite parts of it is the the scene opens up and they're playing the old song Six Days on the Road." Mm -hmm. So the the soundtrack was perfectly designed for this movie too. But again, everything in this scene resonates with me. Dale playing with the seat until it breaks. I've actually had that happen with someone riding in my vehicle. And the whole time I'm just like, Neil, would you quit playing with it? You're going to break it. And in, in hindsight, I was able it's not going to break. And I actually quoted one time, I seen it happen on planes, trains, and automobiles. You're going to break the seat. <laughs> yeah. But it's just a perfectly set up, you know, he, he takes his wallet out, puts it in the glove box. And then probably my favorite sequence of the whole thing is him doing the mess around. Yes. And playing every part of that dashboard and uh, doing the air saxophone and smoking the cigarette <laughs> the whole time. So we've not that we've all smoked while we're driving, but we've all done that. We've taken parts of the steering wheel and made them air guitars and even looking over at Neil while he's sleeping and kind of messing with him and just, yeah. you know, just kind of looking around up everywhere and, oh, shoot, and you, you know, overcorrect. <laughs> he does that a couple times, you know, and then, oh, gosh, when he gets his jacket stuck, you know, the, sleeve, <laughs> the sleeves. It was bad enough the first time, but when he got the second sleeve stuck. Yeah. And we've all, you know, been doing something and, and try to steer with our leg. And he's like steering with his entire crotch. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that just, he just, oh, totally cracks me up. And then, uh, you know, when they, <laughs> they go through the, the two semis, well, first they spin out, you know, and, yeah. oh, oh, we almost hit a deer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was very close, you know, and then they get back on, you're going the wrong way. That what? is my favorite part of the scene is, oh, they're crazy. How do they know where we're going? Yeah. <laughs> You're right. They must be drunk, you know, and he gives them that little, like they're drinking, you know, sign back at him. And thank you. Thank you. You know, you're going to kill somebody. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, 
And it, and it ends perfectly too when they find out that Neil's credit card is burnt up in the car as well. Right? Yeah. And the, like I said, that was perfectly orchestrated. They get off. They're, they they pull the trunk off to the side and they sit down. And then of course the car catches on fire. And then they go through that whole back and forth. There, you stole my credit card. And, no, I didn't. It was just how it happened to be in my wallet. And you stole it. Well, how can you, you know, how could you yeah. run in a car and they go back and forth? And then they realize, hey, I put it back in your wallet. <laughs> the wallet is in the glove box. Oh, gosh. The other scenes have some good nominations, too. Like on the bus, the the young couple making out. And, and Dale's <laughs> like, look, look, Neil, look. And then he looks and he gets busted. And Dale's like, you got busted. And then they're smoking <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> And doing the sing-along, nobody knows Neil's song, but here comes Dale breaking into the Flintstones. Yeah. the Flintstones. I thought that was fun. And some of the things in the bus station scene that Dale is using to sell those shower curtain rings, that would make, uh, I didn't have time to write them all down as he was going through them, but you know, this, this is your Walter Cronkite moon ring right here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> These were handcrafted like... for the Grand Wizard of China. They're reproductions, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it was like, uh, it was almost like an outtakes because it, he just kept going into the, all right, come up with something else, John. And, you know, he'll yeah. come up with something else. So it, it just the, the different ones he <laughs> uses, uh, it worked perfectly there. It was good. And of course the rental car desk, when he's letting loose with the F bombs, he dropped the F bomb 19 times in two minutes. This is the only reason why the movie was rated R. Yep. Yeah. I think he beat my own personal record <laughs> at a rental car place or you mean just, just overall, in, just overall. Okay. okay. I talk a little slower than a lot of people. So for two minutes, that's, that's impressive. <laughs> but I, and I listed that scene as going all the way through to where he and Dale reconnect at the taxi stand outside. And <laughs> John Candy says, that's the first time I've ever seen someone picked up by the testicles. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was probably the, I don't know, the most over-the-top scene was right after that were in their car, and they <laughs> make his voice go higher. You know? <laughs> it was it's funny, but I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> it fit the movie, though. I guess so. And then the final scene, Dale sitting there lonely on the bench in Chicago and, and telling Neil his story and Neil taking him home and introducing his whole family. And the part of that scene that got me the most was when Neil looks up at his wife on the steps and says, I like you made a friend of mine. It wasn't, Oh, Hey, great. It, it was just the soft spokenness of hello, Mr. Griffith and his response, you know, hello, Mrs. Page. I yeah. just thought that was so well done for such a tiny, tiny part of the movie. It just like she respected him instantly for helping get her husband home and he respected her just from all he had heard neil talking about her and his dedication to getting home to her i just thought that was yeah whether that was the intention or not i thought it was so well done but well, it was almost like she we only heard a few conversations between neil and the wife you know over the phone and it was mainly early on but you had to imagine there was longer conversations about what was going on and, uh, you know, put yourself in the position of the wife and really it's taken this long. You would be a little kind of suspect of them. You know, come on, man. It's going to well, take three days to get home. But 
especially back in those days, now with cell phone technology and you can email, text, talk, you can track, you can do whatever. Right. You know, she was at the mercy of him calling because yeah. she had no number to call him at. So maybe, you know, there was that aspect of, huh, I don't know if things are on the up and up here. And maybe it was right. a lot of relief that it's true. You know, here's yeah. this guy he was telling me about. And Well, I, I just assumed at that point that she knew a lot more about Dell and to probably get one more phone call to say, possibly another phone call to say, I've got one more person coming home. But she handled it so well that there was there was more information it seemed like she had when they walked up to the house there, you know. And to just, just to call him by, you know, Mr. Griffith. Well, which scene are you giving your award to for your, for the best scene of the movie or your favorite scene of the movie? I got to stick with the car. I just love that whole sequence. It's, it's hard because, you know, that whole scene, basically they're in the car, it's at night. And then later on after the cars burn up the next day and they get to with uh, Michael McKean and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that whole interchange with him, I don't know. Just that whole scene in the car when they're in the car is great. Scenes. Well, I'm giving my award to the first hotel scene. Just, like I said, for years I've traveled, I've roomed with people, and I've seen that scene play out in various ways, many times personally. The scene actually gets less funny every time I watch it, or it used to. When I'd be watching this when I was traveling, it would get less funny because I'd be like, it's yeah, more I'm personal. Through, yeah, I'm going through that right now. This is not funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's my favorite scene of the movie. Now looking back on it, and and those experiences I had actually lend more experience to that to say that is my favorite scene of the movie because I can relate so much to that scene. Mm-hmm. So, next award: favorite quotes or lines in the movie. Oh, so now. Many. I, I'm leaving out the whole F-bomb soliloquy because we are not an X-rated or R-rated show. So I'm going to leave that out. But uh, uh, I'll give you some of my nominees. Okay. <laughs> I've already given you one. John Candy says, I never saw a guy get lifted up by his testicles before. That, <laughs> that line cracks me up. <laughs> I got several wrote down here. I do too. Um, Neil telling Neil, this is on the first plane ride. Six bucks in my right nut says we're not landing in Chicago. <laughs> that was the first one I wrote down. Yeah. I've, I've used that line myself when something, go, when <laughs> I was traveling, I would just change the city, you know, six bucks. In my right nut says we ain't staying in Nashville tonight. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, what else did I have here? Of course, the, of course, the other quote we've already went through, where's your other hand? It's between two pillows, that whole back and forth sequence. Yeah. Uh, what else did I have? Oh, when Neil, <laughs> Neil asked Dale, you know what would make me happy? And Dale quips right back, a couple of balls and a few extra fingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after that whole exchange of, you play with your nuts a lot or yeah. balls a lot. Come on, Dale. Yeah, and, Larry Bird, uh, uh, <laughs> what was it, uh? Larry Bird don't do as much ball handling as you, as you have in the week last... as you do. Yes. <laughs> that one cracked me up too. Oh my gosh. And another one that cracks me up is right after Neil punches Dale in the stomach. You could have killed me slugging me in the gut when I wasn't ready. That's how Houdini died, you know. <laughs> He's right. Yes. <laughs> That's good. And then I've got one more. 
that I'm going to be touching on again shortly. But uh, when Gus's son comes to pick him up and haul him to the train. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> he wants his wife to help him with the luggage. You're like, no, no, no. And he goes, she's short and skinny, but she's strong. Her first baby came out sideways. She didn't scream or nothing. nothing. Yes. <laughs> that one gets me too. Well, that's oh the God. one. That's the one I'm giving my award to. Okay. I, I love that quote. That's another one I've used time and time again. Uh, yeah. I got a couple, a uh, couple more here that I wrote down. One is uh, when they're. I think it's when they're still in the airport, trying to get a flight out of Wichita, and he's like. We'd have more luck playing pickup sticks with our butt cheeks than getting a yep. flight out of here before daybreak. <laughs> <laughs> that one's great. Um, when they're at the first hotel or motel and the owner comes out, hi, Del, how are you? Still a million bucks shy of being a millionaire. I like that line. <laughs> um, the other one that I use that <laughs> I've, I feel this way. Every time I come home, I, I get my shoes off, my socks off. I got to take my shoes and socks off. <laughs> My dogs are barking today. Yeah. Oh. Oh. <laughs> that was just great too. That was another great one in the car. He's like, I just got the seat positioned perfectly and I can't reach my feet to take my shoes off. You just leave those things on. <laughs> uh, oh, and then just, yeah. Do you believe this vehicle is fit for highway travel? Yes, I do. Yes, yes I do. <laughs> I really feel that. That, uh, <laughs> that whole there's a bunch of lines in that sequence there, but I, I think I'm going to do the dogs are barking because I do say that from time to time. My dogs are barking today when I take my shoes off. That was great. I think the one that gets repeated the most is the one about where's your other hand. Oh I'm yeah, just, just in public in general. And that was in the trailer too. So you know some of these you think of that were just kind of, you know popping up out of nowhere. That being in the trailer, that's, that's probably the most popular and well-known line from the movie. Yeah. All right. Next award. Who stole the show in a minor role? And this is the award I, I really like because nobody else, when they do movie reviews, touches on stuff like this. So any of these outlying characters we've been talking about, and I don't even have nominees for this. I just, cause there's too many to nominate. Everybody is attracted to different things. Uh, what, what would you say is your, who stole the show in a minor role for you? I wrote two down. Okay. I, I would say Edie McClurg is mm-hmm. is one that I would throw out there. And I'm going to reference that uh, featurette that I watched, the behind the scenes. Uh, Hughes had wrote some several different conversations of her on the phone about other cars being rented and stuff. And then he just walked up her and said, hey, just talk about Thanksgiving. So that whole scene that she is on the phone, gobble, gobble, and (laughs) that was all her. That was not like scripted or anything. And then the fact that she mentions Ambrosia, which we (laughs) we talked about last week, I thought that was great. I was like, oh, there we go. We got to get some marshmallows. (laughs) (laughs) Guess we got to get some marshmallows. Yeah. So knowing that kind of after the fact and watching it again, you know, that one's definitely got to be one. And that's it's a solid pick. And it, and it's a great example of the award because she's in the movie for what? Three minutes. Yeah. That. And it's memorable. It's just memorable. People remember her and that whole exchange. Yeah. 
Well, uh, people remember him spouting off the F word 19 times too. So, right. but, I mean, but she was the beneficiary. Yeah. She was the beneficiary of that scene. I've got two as well. Okay. One we already talked about was uh, Gus's son. Everything about his appearance, his demeanor, <laughs> snorting and spitting. and he's, Get out of here, woman. Yeah, he spits and then wipes his face and then shakes, you know, Neil's yeah. hand. That's great. That's great. Uh, that little two-minute exchange is one of the parts I look forward to most whenever I'm going to watch the movie. Is She, she didn't scream or nothing. <laughs> and People my other... go out of Stubville. <laughs> you know, unless you are a hog or a cattle <laughs> and, and my other favorite is doobie and his taxi oh Both that's, that's what i wrote those. down too man <laughs> <laughs> yes that taxi oh my god i had totally i it's one of those things that i don't know either i push back in my brain or when I watched it this time, I watched it twice <laughs> in preparation for the show. I'm like, that is the greatest taxi alive, and I want yes. a Hot Wheels vehicle of it right now for my collection. <laughs> Forget the Hot Wheels version. I want that car. <laughs> I want whatever cassette he had in the player playing. Yes. I want the whole thing. It is it much great. farther, Doobie? Yeah, <laughs> little ways. Why didn't you take the interstate? You don't see anything on the interstate, but interstate. You said your friend was new. I thought he'd want to look around. <laughs> yeah, he's got like the girly pictures posted up. Yeah, the lights got the little tassels and say, "That's a oh, that's a gosh. badass ride right there." And the yeah, and the hydraulics, yeah, the <laughs> drop down at the end when they park. Uh, oh. That is such a sweet ride, and and boobies, whoever I didn't look up who played it, but for no more of a part than that was, he played it to a T. You could just believe that guy was real, and he owned that car. Yeah. He's been in a lot. And he had painted on the outside of the car. It said boobies, taxiola. Doobies. Yes. Doobies. Not boobies. Yeah. <laughs> taxiola. Taxiola. Yep. Mm -hmm. Larry Hankin is his name. Uh, he's been in a lot of stuff. He was actually uh, Sergeant Balzac in Home Alone. Oh, okay. That? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Billy Madison, he was in Friends, uh, just a uh, a character actor type person that just pops up for a little bit in some of these movies, you know. He's been around for a long time. Uh, here's a little something on that car. So Doobie himself may look a little rough, but it's the establishing shots of the scene showing his car that hint at the experience they're in for in Wichita. Personalized license plate that says Wolf. A light-up devil's head shifter. Cutouts of pinup girls all over the interior and dozens of rubber ducks hanging from every window. <laughs> Leopard print seats and an amp with a big equalizer display. Yeah. Uh, that was a great car. Oh, wow. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. You know, they do a lot of those movie cars now and uh, Hot Wheels and what is it? Johnny Lightning. They do a lot of those. I've gotten some like the national lampoons vacation uh truckster and those kind of cars i love collecting those so we definitely need doobies taxiola well we'll get on to our biggest award now who was the mvp of the movie this is anybody and anything in it and this is a tough one because this this comes down to a well for some movies it'd probably be pretty obvious 
But in a movie like this, when you have two main stars, both playing the role so well, and you have good supporting characters, in my mind, there is not, uh, there's not a supporting character big enough to win this award. To me, it comes down to yeah. Steve Martin and John Candy. I agree and with that. My MVP of it would be John Candy's character, Dale, because without him, Neil's journey isn't what it is because of Dale. And I think without that Dale character and all the eccentricities of it, this this is not a movie that gets made. I agree, hundred percent. It's John Candy. Wow, that's what I wrote down. And I, I again, it's the up and down of the character, and mm-hmm. it's more than a comedic role because you see the serious side of him, and you see his kind of secret, almost a, a secret life that he's leading, compared to what he's telling Neil throughout the whole movie with his wife being passed away and he drops those little hints. I hadn't been home in years and he finally puts it all together at the end. And then you kind of see him for really, really who he is. He's funny too. I mean, and just some of the, the mannerisms of how he's delivering the lines to Neil Mm -hmm. are, is funny, even though maybe the line isn't meant to be comedic, you know, trying to think of a good example. Yeah. Even like, like we were talking about with the <laughs> with uh, Michael McKean when he pulls him over and he's trying to be straight about the safety of the car and does it fit for travel. That's just great. Really great. So but the I'm, radio I'm, works just fine. <laughs> yeah. Go factor in that. Yeah. Um, we'll, I will talk about it more in the next segment here of the show, but I definitely think it was John Candy. Okay. Well, we're in total agreement on that. So good job, John Candy, for winning that award. (laughs) But, uh, well, that leads perfectly right into the next section. Was this John Candy's best role that he ever played? I thought about this for a while because he's one of my favorite actors in the 80s and beyond his, you know, lifetime of all time. Uh, Well, before you you make your pick for people who may not be familiar you know, John Candy was also in Uncle Buck. He had a great role in Spaceballs. He was the lead in Cool Runnings, Who's Harry Crumb, Splash, Armed and Dangerous, The Great Outdoors, Summer Rental, Canadian Bacon, Wagons East. So many movies for people who may not know, but I'll let you continue now. Yeah, I mean, he, there's, and there's several roles in there, even though, like, for instance, like Spaceballs, I don't know if you would call that a lead role. Not a lead I role. I love. But- I love Barf, and mm-hmm. <laughs> you think of some of the other movies like, well, Summer Rental and The Great Outdoors is kind of that same role. The dad, yeah. they're going on vacation, and there's a lot of elements in between there. But I loved him as as those two uh, individual roles as well. But after thinking long and hard, I'm going to put this number two as far as the best roles by John Candy, and I'm going to put Uncle Buck above this one. Because Uncle Buck, I don't know, there, there's a lot of that too where he's just trying to live life and there's funny moments and there's the serious moments when, you know, when he turns over the the picture, the wedding picture that they had folded back of him and they're kind of embarrassed of him and he gets to show his, you know, kind of sensitive side. And then when he goes out and rescues the daughter from the party and mm-hmm. his niece and... um I, I don't know. I love everything about Uncle Buck, and it's it's close, but I'm going to put Uncle Buck ahead of Del Griffith. Well, I'm going to put Del Griffith at the top of my list. 
and behind it, it was a very short role, but he had a role in JFK as a serious actor Mm -hmm. and just the accent he had in that movie and, and the speech he was trying to get across and the feeling he was trying to convey, he was phenomenal in that five minutes of that movie. So that's my second favorite, but I got to give, and I think you'll agree. We got to give an honorable mention to his role in armed and dangerous. Just, he was funny in that movie too. Julie, I'm yeah. going to kill you, Dooley. When he, uh, he's running from Zeus, you know, <laughs> that's one of those movies. And I've probably watched, I, I might've watched armed and dangerous more than any other John Candy movie. <laughs> it's weird. It's and it's, you know, it's not one that everybody goes to. Right. It's very underrated and it's so funny. And he's got some great sarcastic type lines in that one. Love that one. Well, um, this movie wasn't his biggest moneymaker. John Candy's biggest moneymaker was Uncle Buck. It made $150 million. And surprisingly, his second right behind that was Cool Runnings at $149 million. I like Cool wow. Runnings, but I don't think of that as a big movie. You know, it's yeah. a let's make a movie type movie. But I, I really liked it. And then Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was third on John Candy's list at $113 million. So... Along the same vein, was this Steve Martin's best role? And he, he's got a lot of good, you know, Parenthood, The Jerk, Roxanne, Three Amigos, Father of the Bride movies, Cheaper by the Dozen movies, My Blue Heaven was great with him, and then way back, The Man with Two Brains, so on and so forth. Where do you put this at in, in Steve Martin's roles? I have not watched a lot of his movies. The ones that I've watched the most are probably this one and... Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I've watched that one many, many, many times. And I'm probably going to put that one. This this one is going to be my second on Steve Martin's list. I'm going to put his character in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels first. I haven't really connected with the jerk. I have watched Roxanne a few times. That one's pretty good. But I'm not, I'm not really a huge Steve Martin fan. And those two stand out the most to me. Uh, just from the ones that I've gone back and rewatched as well. Well, for me, it's hard to put anything above his iconic role in the jerk, but I would put my blue heaven right behind it. The jerk is, it's what made Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he may say this was the best movie he was in or the best role he had, but they may have got tired of being asked to do stuff from the jerk over and over and over again. But yeah, so good in that. It's, it's it, what made him a movie star, probably. I mean, he right. was a comedian long before that and, you know, his whole live shows and everything. But The Jerk is what really made him a movie star, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve Martin's biggest movie uh, was Parenthood, made $226 million. Wow. And surprisingly, actually, that that was his second. His biggest movie is still The Jerk. It made $263 million. Now, that is in its lifetime since mm-hmm. then. And uh, this was way down his list. It wasn't even his top 10 moneymakers. Planes, trains, and automobiles wasn't. Uh, From the era, is there anybody you would put in either one of these roles besides who had them? I was thinking about that. I don't, it's, it's hard for me to even plug in anybody from that era in there. Me Um, too. Just because these two hit it out of the park, it's hard to imagine anybody else. You know. Yeah. I mean, I could, if it was later, maybe Jim Carrey in Steve Martin's role, but 
again, there there's so many other actors of the time. You think of like uh, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd and that whole group, the the SNL and SCTV comedic actors that were hitting the peak. Bill Murray around mm-hmm. that time. I can't think of any of those that I would would rather have or can see in either of the two roles. Yeah, I, I think it's great as it is, but I think that leads into my next question. What should the next incarnation be of this movie? As mm-hmm. in, should this movie have a sequel? Should it be rebooted? Like we're going, we're in the reboot generation now, or would this work better as like a seven to 10 episode Netflix series? Or should it just be left alone? I think it should just be left alone personally. It's one of those movies to me that I think it it would be very, very hard for a new version of it to replace the original. I can see it being rebooted. I, I don't. Oh, I, I can see it being rebooted. Yeah. I just don't not that, that I wanted to. <laughs> I mean, because it, like you said, it's still relatable. There's a few little minor details in it. You know, when he he's running right up to the the desk at six o'clock. You know, at the airport. <laughs> that's not going to happen now, but well, and modern technology negates so much of this movie. It does. It, I yeah. don't think it works as a modern movie either. Yeah. You'd have to, it would be a, a totally different feel and there would probably be different. I don't know. I don't know how you would do it with the, the, the transportation, but yeah. In the era of cell phones, it's, it's a lot of these movies back in the eighties just lose their, the traveling and all that it just loses their luster because once you just pick up the cell phone dummy and call your wife yeah right. couldn't do that back or then you, you'd instead of using the payphone to call motels you'd be on hotels tonight.com and instantly finding a room somewhere you know mm-hmm. <clears throat> but technology aside i think this movie is built to be a netflix series because all these great scenes we mentioned each of those are episodes the first hotel scene is an mm-hmm. episode. The second hotel scene is an episode. All these are episodes that I think you get seven or 10 episodes out of something like that. Probably. But again, I probably wouldn't want. <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to. But no. just as a general question for this series of podcasts, would this movie work translated as a seven to 10 I series? So. I think it chops up well enough that you could and yeah. you could flesh out and do more with those scenes. That yeah, I think it would work. Just don't call it planes, trains and automobiles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, uh, before we move on, I had one other what if oh, to okay. plug in here because uh, we were talking about what other actors. To me, it's always been weird that the final song, Every Time You Go Away, was not done by Paul Young. It was like a cover of mm-hmm. the, the, the popular song. And just recently, I'm, I'm going to plug myself for a second or plug our, our buddy Tim in old school eighties. He did an interview with Paul Young back in the day, like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago that I've republished over there and rediscovered the eighties. And he asked him that question. He said, uh, the song, every time you go away is used, but it is performed by another group called blue room instead of by you. As far as you know, were you ever approached or considered to use your version of the song for the movie? Uh, the song is perfect for the moment in the film which is one of my favorites, but I always wish that your version of the song and Paul responded, damn it. I wanted my version of every time you go away in that movie. So bad. I was a big Steve Martin fan and had seen the rushes of the movie with my version cut in, but, uh, Yentikoff 
the head of CBS at the time and the head of Warner Brothers had some little war going on. So he said they, he could have used it had he got a good price or it, I guess maybe they priced it out of the <laughs> out of the picture. Um, so he continues, so I lost out. I always wondered who did it, who, who were Blue Room. <laughs> it was like somebody just, hey, y'all, go cover this song so we can put it in this movie. Well, I but, never... Uh, I th- but that was interesting. I never knew that part of the history of it, that it could have come down to the price point. I thought of the song fit better sung by a female in the moment it was used in than, than a guy, because it's from the perspective of his wife. So, well, that's true. I mean, I can see that side of it, but I never actually the... even questioned it. I mean, I knew they weren't the original, but it never dawned on me to even ask why, just because it was perfect for how it was used, I guess. Uh. Well, this it was such a big hit, and I've always wondered that. I was wondering why didn't they use the radio version, the top forty version that I heard, and they they covered it there. So it was just yeah, it was just kind of a fluke, more or less, that they wanted his version, but the the heads of CBS and Warner Brothers were had at it and didn't get a chance to uh, to get it in there. So that's a little fun what if. Well, as we're winding this thing down, let's go through some facts and tidbits that people may not be aware of. And uh, I know you and I have talked about when we're formatting this show that the host for that week, like I am this week, will gather the information, hopefully, to surprise the other person and see what happens. So the first thing I got here is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was the first movie John Hughes did that didn't have teenagers as the lead actors, which I had to sit and think about that for a moment. And I was like, yeah, I guess I guess that's right. Interesting. Uh, I already mentioned about this. He wrote the first draft of the entire thing in only three days, but he wrote the biggest part of it in just six hours based on his prior experiences. Uh, he says he had admitted that it once took him five days to get from New York to Chicago because of a plane delay that stranded him in Wichita, Kansas. So that part of the story is based on a true story. Well, I've got an interesting little take on that as well. I guess we'll save that for the next segment. Okay. On, on, on John Hughes's experience. So, okay. Um, an unopened highway in upstate New York was used for many of the scenes on the highway. I guess it was a newly constructed place that, mm-hmm. you know, I guess that's what they mean by, by unopened film crews created nearly 20 miles of train track an airline terminal and a rent a car company. Because transportation companies refused to appear in a film that was set to paint their industry in such a negative light. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. So they forego any notoriety just because it was going to be so bad. And most people will say, you know, any publicity is good publicity. I guess in this case, they're like, yeah, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. Different time. <laughs> Some companies had morals. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this touches a little bit more on how long it took him to write it too. Before he was a screenwriter, John Hughes used to work as a copywriter in Chicago. Uh, one day he had a presentation at 11 a.m. in New York and planned to be on the 5 p.m. flight home. But thanks to winter weather, his flight was canceled, so he stayed overnight in a hotel. Afterward, his plane was diverted to Denver, then Phoenix, and he was able to write the first 60 pages of planes, trains, and automobiles based on that experience. 60 pages of material from that one experience. I've read, uh, or I think in that featurette, he mentioned that he wrote the first draft 
more or less over the weekend, and then he went back and he always has like twenty to twenty five rewrites hmm. from what he was saying in the interview. So it he must have like put it all together over the course of a weekend too, or, or came back to that sixty pages that he initially wrote. Well, I'm down to three more here, and these are my three favorites. I saved them to last. Okay. When they're they're on the flight from New York to Chicago, the exterior footage of the aircraft in the storm was reused from the 1980 movie Airplane. Oh, really? Yes. Did not know that. <laughs> so saving a little money. I guess so. Uh, the next one, one of my favorites here. It's rumored that John Hughes had a three-hour cut of planes, trains, and automobiles. And the current movie's runtime is 92 minutes. And that cut supposedly still exists in a vault at Paramount. I did read that somewhere. I can't remember where I did. So, yeah, I've got some unanswered questions, too, about the other whatever hour and a half that's never been seen. (laughs) (laughs) And then my final little tidbit, and it's my favorite. Neil's family home is the same house as in Home Alone, which was also written and produced by John Hughes. Yeah, that's easily recognizable now when you watch it. Yeah. That it's the same house. That's great. So what unanswered questions did you have? I wrote down a few. Um, Now, (laughs) knowing that there was a, a longer cut of the movie, is there a deleted, like, scene in the hotel room where they order pizza because they should be there. Yeah. They referred to, uh, I think Neil refers to, uh, Dell went into his wallet for pizza money. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's why his, they were going back and forth on the credit card. And then in the trailer, you see Neil eating pizza and it appeared to be something wrong with it. Like half of the slice was crust and (laughs) there was, like the, then the other half had the pizza sauce and topping. If you look in the trailer, so that was uh, one of my unanswered questions: Is there a deleted pizza scene? The other, and this is going back to the trailer too, because if you watch the trailer, and they did this back in the day, there's a ton of footage in there that's not in the movie. One of them is: Is there a deleted scene of John Candy destroying that bathroom? <laughs> because you see him in the you see him in the trailer, he's messing around uh, in the mirror uh, in the bathroom in the trailer. It shows him like flossing, and it shows him uh, singing into a hairbrush. So that whole scene that we see the aftermath of the towels everywhere, and you know the sink with his dirty socks and all everything that happened to that. I want to see that scene that <laughs> that created that. That's one of the biggest ones. And then the other one we mentioned was the the, the extra footage of Michael McKeon when they uh, filmed his part uh, with the pulling over the car. And in that featurette, he actually mentions that there's a line that they cut of his where he tells them they had driven past Chicago. Oh, so that would that be great. Was, <laughs> that was another element cut out that, uh, oh, they drove, <laughs> they freaking drove past their destination. Got on the wrong road or something. Yeah. yeah. That so. would be a great addition. And I wonder about some of those scenes because in the original TV versions of this movie, there was a whole scene on the first airplane flight with Dale and the other guy on the other side of Steve Martin ordering and eating dinner on the plane and making a mess. And did you recognize that guy? 
I recognize him from all kinds of stuff, but I couldn't tell you what his name is. I don't. Yeah, I didn't look up the actor's name. I know him as the old man in Home Alone Two, when the mom is begging to for the the older couple to get their tickets to to go back uh, to fly back home, mm-hmm. and uh, she's got a whole shoebox full of earrings, the dangly ones. Yeah. That's that guy. That's <laughs> I. <laughs> I, that's him, man. I've seen Home Alone way too many times. I'm I'm pretty sure he's also the grandfather on the Waltons, right? I mean, that's the same guy. I it's been a year since I watched the Waltons, yeah, so I can't I confirm that. But yeah, so I was I instantly picked him out. But yeah, that was another thing. I, did you watch the deleted scene? I did not. It's interesting because going into I can see why it was cut now with nobody else in the airline or you know whatever rental car industry wanting their name attached to the movie Dell is sitting there eating his meal and he goes on to this whole rant about meals on other airlines that he's experienced and it's pretty funny actually the <laughs> Neil doesn't really want his meal so him and the old man split it up <laughs> he didn't want half <laughs> his brownie and then uh, Neil's like no I want to keep the brownie and about that time the woman in the seat in front of him flops her hair back like right into the brownie <laughs> <laughs> and there's this whole exchange there so it's it's a pretty funny scene that's the, that's the only one that i actually saw that's been released out of that footage like you said that exists somewhere that we i would want to see immediately well maybe one day we'll get the full length version you know the way maybe instead of doing a reboot or a remake we just get a new release with Re- <laughs> let's start a hashtag release the john hughes cut of plane mm-hmm. trains and automobiles <laughs> since there's that huge movement, you know, release the Snyder cut for the justice league going on now. Yeah. Uh, we want to see the full three hours of plane trains and automobiles. Yeah. We want to see the unsucky version of justice league release it. If there is such a thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> One other question that I had, and this again goes back to an interview from our friend Tim over there, old school eighties that he conducted with, uh, the director, Martha Coolidge, who she directed, uh, real genius and Valley girl, uh, back in the day. And John Hughes fired her like four days before filming some kind of wonderful. She was attached to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to quote this, uh, right from this interview. She said, um, quote, years later, I ran into John on an airplane in a small first-class cabin flying back from Japan for 12 hours. He greeted me cheerfully and acted like nothing had ever happened, and he never caused me any pain. I was polite to him. I felt good that I was returning from Japan to the movie Rambling Rose, and he had Curly Sue, the movie. The thing that galled me more was I told him my story about my disastrous plane and train trip back and forth from New York one week, my plane was delayed, then diverted. The train had a collision. The food ran out. A heat wave hit. I wanted to make a film out of the experience. Before I knew it, he oh, wrote planes, wow. trains, and automobiles, and it was in production. The moral of that story is to never tell a good writer your best stories, unquote. <laughs> wow. So, and you can take this at face value. This is from Martha Coolidge, an interview. You can read it on Rediscover the 80s. Uh, she says that Hughes stole the idea from her essentially. So that's interesting um, to say the least. And 
to think how quickly he could write something, get it in production or, you know, uh, sold to a company. It, I don't, I don't see that it's not a possibility, but at the same time, reading all the stories around that and him, even in that featurette saying that it was based on a personal experience. I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> Pretty crazy to think somebody stole an idea or plagiarized, whatever you want to call it. So I'll just leave it out there and people can form their own opinion about that. Hmm. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. That was all I had as far as uh, unanswered questions. Yeah. uh, There was one that floats around the internet that I don't even know why it's a question that keeps coming up is how did Neil's diners club card get in Dale's wallet? Well, if you pay attention to the movie, when they're checking into the first hotel, the hotel clerk switches them. Right, and yeah. They pick up the wrong ones. I don't know why that's such a uh, a big thing. I mean, there's a Reddit thread on that. It's like 300 posts, and I'm like, what? Oof. take five minutes and watch it. You'll see. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know that was a thing. I mean, that's pretty obvious. You can watch it. Yeah, I caught yeah. that like right away. So, yeah, that's how all that goes down. Well, the the unan- I did have kind of one unanswered question. I wonder if there's a scene missing introducing the character when they get robbed in their motel at night. That's the only time we see that kid, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like no buildup to it. There's no foreshadowing. It helps set up to make the rest of the movie possible, I guess, with some of their struggles. That's why it's there. But I just thought it just seemed out of place that there's just some random guy in the room all of a sudden. But Well, there is, it's a shady motel at, at the very least. You, you know, when they're walking in and that woman is <laughs> punches him in the chest, that other guy. As they're walking in, so you know mm-hmm. it's not exactly your uh, four star. I just feel like there was something Marriott. missing to where, like, I don't know he he worked there or something, and they're like, "Oh, you guys traveling?" And yeah, I've got to get home. And what do you do? Yeah, you know, I just feel like there was something that led him to that you. room that we didn't see, but yeah, it could be like <laughs> the pizza. Maybe it was the pizza delivery kid coming back. Maybe he's seen all the money in the wallet. There you and came go. Back. Yeah, they open up the wallet while he's there to pay him and. That actually seems very plausible. Dell, yeah. Well, if Dell, yeah, if Dell's Dell has his wallet and he just opens it up, there's seven hundred dollars in it. Yeah, he could. Just yeah, this come is back Neil's and... wallet. He's loaded. You know. <laughs> uh, uh, we just put uh, two and two together there. I think we got a deleted scene that's still out there somewhere. Man, and this is just the first episode. Imagine what <laughs> we're going to do. <laughs> well, yeah. we put the solicitation out for people's feedback, and we got a fair amount of it for a show we'd never produced or put out before. <laughs> Someone run through some of it. Let's do it. So, Mike Rawman over on Twitter at be our guest, Mike. His thoughts were uh, best Thanksgiving movie ever. Plus, there's a scene shot right near my home at Lambert St. Louis International Airport. That scene would be the uh, cab stand scene where he gets lifted up by the testicles. That was the airport they were at for that scene. And as far as I could tell, that was the only exterior shots of that airport in the movie. So he was there for the great testicle grab of 1987. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Suzanne Greco Mataboni, Mataboni, pardon me for butchering that, uh, saw them filming this in New York City. Steve Martin was leaning against a taxi and his stand-in or stunt guy was underneath the cab dressed just like him. I don't think the scene made it into the movie. I think someone just steals his cab. Anyway, the ending pulls at the heartstrings and there's the parallel to Home Alone when the mom is trying at all costs to get back to Chicago at Christmas to take care of Kevin and ends up in the back of a refrigerated truck with John Candy. 
Yeah, that scene gets brought up a lot as far as the similarities between the two movies. Uh huh. Our good friend and collaborator, Michael, Earth to Mike on Twitter. I've always loved that movie. It nails a certain aspect of the adult experience, and he calls it a terrific film. Uh, I love this name here, too. Ryan the Canned Cranberry Sauce at Dalton TV on Twitter says, This was my first grown-up movie. I remember being bored, homesick from school, and going through our tapes. Decided to watch this one at nine years old and have absolutely loved it since. Wow, nine years old. For an yeah. R-rated movie. <laughs> Well, let's see. Uh, when I would have discovered it, I would have, I would have probably been 13 or 14, probably my first time seeing it. Uh, Jamie Taylor at Closer to the Edge 7 on Twitter said, pretty much a perfect movie. I can't think of one thing I'd change. Well, we can. We'd add in those scenes that we've been talking about. <laughs> uh, of course, he didn't know about those when he typed that, maybe. I, he'd probably agree with us now. Uh, Tim Heasley at Timmy He's Five on Twitter says, "Great movie, haha! Ha. My favorite part is when Steve Martin goes off in the motel room rant. How can you stand it? I'd say because I've been with Dale Griffith. I can take anything. I can take anything. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I see that scene where, uh, or the <laughs> the motions where he's blah 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 blah. Yeah, I see that in great. a lot of uh, montages and everything. Yeah. Uh." Fellow TRN alumni Jeff at Pilot Jeff on Twitter says four freaking wheels and a seat is the best line in the whole movie. Well, we picked our best lines in the whole movie. Now we know what Jeff gives the award to. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Rusty Van Hoy over on Facebook. I put this post up, asking for feedback, and he sent a comment that says, funny enough, I was just talking to my friend about that movie. Our speedometer has melted, and as a result, it's very hard to see with any degree of accurately exactly how fast we were going. Speedometer's <laughs> melted. <laughs> Surprising enough, the radio still works. Yeah. Yes. So well, that's a lot of good feedback, people giving their thoughts and stuff on the movie. That was great. Well, is that going to do it, man? Well, close. You want to... Let's give us a five-star rating. What do you... Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. All Things Considered, it's a really good holiday movie. It's got big stars. They pull off the roles well. I'm always entertained by it. I've watched it a lot, which means I like it. I'd say this is four and a half out of five stars for me. Yeah, I mean, I... Gosh, I can't even see a reason why I'd pull it off of five. Well, Top-notch comedy of its time and... Still, like I said, if it still makes you laugh 30 years later, <laughs> it's a great movie. And I'm almost with uh, whoever it was that said it was flawless because it's it's really good. There's only a couple maybe things I would change, like his his voice. That was a little ridiculous. <laughs> but, man, I, I'll give it five out of five. I don't care. I'll tell you the mark of a – for me, what the mark of a great movie is, and I, we've talked about it during this, is when the movie – Nothing about the movie changes, but your perception about life changes and the movie still fits where at different points in your life. When I was younger and watched this, it was a great comedy. As I got older and was traveling, it was still funny, but in an entirely different way because it was relatable. And it's still and the fact that he's trying to get home. We've all been through that. This movie is relatable. Like I said, it's still great 30 years later, and that's why it. It stays the same. We evolve around it, yet it still applies. So it, it's a Definitely great agree. movie. Definitely agree. And that's, yeah, again, I'm not, I'm not a film critic. I don't 
care about the you know really the way the movie was shot or if there's continuity stuff that I notice, then yeah, that's that's going to drive my ability to rewatch it back a little bit. But what I want to have is that same experience the first time if I really enjoyed it the fiftieth time, and that's definitely the case for this. So. Yeah. Our ratings aren't just to critique the director or the cinematography or the acting. It's it's everything together that that makes it fun to watch. And yeah. a lot of these movies, you know, we'll probably get to some movies where either we haven't seen before or ones that maybe rubbed us the wrong way the first time that we can critique a little bit more compared to one like this that we, we've watched, you know, at least once a year for the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years maybe. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where we're coming from with the with trying to review a movie just for so everybody understands. I agree. It's the enjoyability factor, not the technical factor we care about. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's going to about do it for our first episode of the TRN Drive-In. Man, this was a really fun to go through. I think we'll probably do some tweaking and even based on your feedback on what you thought of our different categories and awards and everything we dove into uh, for the next one, which I think we might end up doing one here in a couple of weeks, Mick. Mm-hmm. Getting Just to be in time for Christmas. It's getting to be Christmas. Um, and if I'm picking, if I'm going to host the show, it's I got to go with my favorite Christmas movie. I, well, it's, it's so hard. It's so hard just to pick. One of my favorite Christmas movies, one that I'm known for, I guess you could say, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I'm going to see it in the theater for the first time, Mick, in Ooh. two weeks. It's one night only at AMC theaters. Oh, my gosh. I, I'm just so excited. And I hate leaping over Thanksgiving to get to Christmas because I do enjoy Thanksgiving. <laughs> but hearing that last week and seeing that it was going to be locally here, I've almost done that. My mind is just fixed on going to see that in the theater. But it will be fun to break that one down for the drive in. And I know there's a lot of meaty details about that one. Oh gosh. There's lots of little things here and there that I've heard over the years that I'd love to dive into. So, and there's, gosh, I, I, it's funny just talking with my friends because I'm trying to get a a group together to go see it. And I'm like, okay, you're going to be cousin Eddie. I'll be, (laughs) I'll be, (laughs) I'll be Clark. You be him. And we're just going to quote the entire movie. (laughs) While we're there, you should dress like a, up like them too. I, yeah, shoot. get your friend to wear a bathrobe, black socks, and a and one of those hats <laughs> to the theater. She was full. Yeah, it's going to be a hell of a time, but uh, that's definitely one that we should do for Christmas. So, absolutely, be looking for that in the feed coming up here in a couple of weeks as we get closer to Christmas. And this was great, man. Enjoyed the drive-in. Yep. Uh, I tell you what, folks listening, send us your feedback. You can send it personally. You can send it through TRN, however you want to. We want your feedback on mm-hmm. what we miss. Is there a, a something about movies that we didn't cover? Is there something that we covered it too much? Just let yeah. us know. We're going to tweak it a little bit before we officially launch the show. This is, like I said, the beta version. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just something about planes, trains, and automobiles that we missed that we should have discussed. Yeah. Maybe your favorite scene in the movie or something. Uh, it's hard to keep this to, you know, the time that we're doing this and not cover every single scene, but 
uh, I'm sure there's stuff that we might have missed along the way and skipped over uh, somebody's favorite part. Let us know. Uh, tweet us. You know, we can find us on social media or the show notes on the website, wherever you want to do it. We'll find you. Yep. And we thank you guys for listening. The drive-in, I guess we're going to go ahead and close it for now. For Mickey, this is Jason. Thanks so much for being here on this first episode of the TRN Drive-In. We hope you enjoyed it, and happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.